the National Archives podcast series, What at First Was Plunder, Tracing Records of Excisemen. The aim of this talk is essentially to lay out what records exist at the National Archives and elsewhere for officers of HM Excise Service. However, during the course of the talk, I'll also touch briefly on how the Excise Service was formed, general roles of excisemen, and what problems they had to face. Generally, customs officers collected duties on imports and prevented smuggling and were largely based in ports, whereas excise officers were responsible for ensuring payment of tax on home-produced goods. But as we will see, the boundaries were often blurred, and while the services were separate until 1909, the roles of smuggling and prevention and the early levying of duties ran in parallel. So what of the title? What at first was plunder said Thomas Paine in his part two of The Rights of Man, assumed the softer name of revenue. Thomas Paine used this to describe the origins of present and early forms of government. And again, we'll see from the history shortly that um, Jews from excise and from customs underpinned initially the monarchy and then state government. The picture that comes with this is Sir Edwin Landseer's The Highland Whiskey Still, painted in the 1820s, which captures the atmosphere of an early illegal still on the far right. At the time, as many as 14,000 illicit stills were confiscated each year. A very brief history of the excise service to get us into the subject and set the scene. In 1626, in the second year of his reign, Charles I issued a commission to 33 lords to inquire into the levying of an excise. The name means a cutting off, since a portion of the value of everything assessed was to go to the king. The project was unpopular, since it sought to bring a new form of taxation to the general public on goods which, while neither of necessity or luxury, were viewed as staples or means of relaxation and enjoyment. The customs revenue hardly touched the pockets of the ordinary citizen and the rents from the crown lands, which constitute another large chunk of the state income, only affected the actual tenants. But an excise was different. Everyone would have to pay. And the opposition was so great that the project was abandoned for many years. The outbreak of civil war put the issue of an excise back onto the agenda. Both the royalists and the parliamentarians needed immediate and vast sums of money to meet the costs of arms and men. The first ordinance of excise was that of the 13th of May 1643. It was not an act of parliament because the break with the king had already happened and throughout the civil war and commonwealth legislation was by ordinance. The excise revenue then established was even far more reaching than the present system. In order to amass as much money as possible, the excise revenue of the day consisted of taxes on an enormous number of articles, both home-produced and imported. With taxes at every point of production, sale, importation and export, the government had all the bases covered and could raise rates unhindered whenever the occasion demanded. The excise was terribly unpopular. In a riot near Smithfield in 1647, the excise office was burnt down, and from time to time in many parts of the country there were outbreaks against the new revenue. However, during and in the aftermath of the war, it proved impossible to dismiss this profitable new form of taxation. At the period of the Restoration, the excise revenue was firmly established. At the time of Charles II, while the revenues of customs and most of the crown lands remained largely intact, the ancient revenues of the feudal dues had been allowed to lapse. So in recompense, it was decided that the royal revenue should have half of the existing excise revenue to be known as hereditary excise, while the other half was granted to Charles II for life only. So for the next 20 years, the whole of the excise went directly to the king. 
The image that you see on the right-hand side is from the Treasury Warrant Book T7310, addressed to the Board of Excise authorising, amongst other payments, the payment to Nell Gwynne, Mrs Nelly, of £250 every fortnight out of the excise revenue. This constituted roughly 1.5% of the total excise revenue, so it was quite considerable for the time. So you can see that when Charles II on his deathbed said, let not poor Nelly starve, he thought he'd laid down a good basis for her not to do so. However, things are never permanent. In 1683, the excise was placed under the direct administration of commissioners, and a board of excise was established. From this date onwards, accounts, warrants and minutes were maintained and largely survive in the records held at the National Archives. Poor Mrs Nelly no longer appears from this point. During the reign of William III, the necessities of the French wars required the reorganisation of the finances of the country. Excise duties multiplied rapidly, but the new taxes were for the state, not for the king's private purse. In 1707, following the Act of Union, an excise board was set up in Edinburgh to administer taxes in Scotland on the English model. A large number of, Eng of English excise officers were sent up north to administer the taxes, which proved unpopular and difficult to enforce, especially in the more remote parts of Scotland and the Highlands. The English system of duties on malts and spirits was abandoned and a separate assessment established for Scotland. In 1849, the excise service was subsumed into the inland revenue, and in more recent times, customs and excise services were amalgamated by an order of council on the 1st of April 1909 and were administered by the Board of Customs and Excise and the service became HM Customs and Excise. So what goods were actually taxable? Which of the home-produced goods did excise fall upon? Mentioned largely staples, commodities that the government might view perhaps as they can tax because it's not necessarily that good for you. And although people like it, there's an opportunity to say, well, we're acting in your best interests as well. So, beer, still in force, was taxed from 1643 to 1830 and from 1880 onwards. Taxation on bricks, candles and chicory, still in force also, is an excise on cider and perry, which initially ran from 1643 to 1830, briefly in the First World War and beyond it from 1916 to 1923 and enforceable from 1976. There were taxes on cotton prints, glass, hops, leather, malt from 1697 to 1880 to be subsumed into a general beer tax. Taxes on matches still going from the First World War and on methylated spirits. There were taxes on paper, plate, playing cards, saccharin, salt and soap. On spirits, taxes still in force and have been going from 1660. On starch, sugar, table waters, importantly especially um, in its role to galvanise the American populace into revolution, a tax on tea, which at one stage had both customs and excise duties imposed upon it, and was only finally fully repealed in 1964. Taxes on vinegar, wines definitely still enforced, largely an excise duty on British sweet wines from 1696 to 1834, and then reimposed in 1927. So an officer of excise would, in part, be responsible for enforcing the legislation set up on these. But what otherwise was the general role of excise, of an exciseman? 
There's an excellent table that I've taken from a book. This is actually the work of John Pink, who in his The English Officers and Their Duties in an English Market Town, Kingston, established the way of assessing what an exciseman did in the 17th, 18th, 19th and 20th century. So over the centuries, they measured, sampled and checked products to calculate the duty of beer, spirits, malt and later sugar, established records and accounts to verify the duty paid on hearths and windows, auctions, the hire of post horses and purchase tax, checked that various types of excise licence were taken out for dealers in tea and coffee, armorial bearings, beer cider and perry, wine, spirits and liquor, looked for the evasion of excise in brewing, smuggling, distilling and betting, and when directed, undertook non-revenue tasks, such as compiling of billeting returns, acting as paymaster to press gangs, ensuring that everything was above board as far as probate and the payment of old age pensions, where occasionally their duties would involve going round to the house of the old age pensioner to ensure that they were still alive and that everything was therefore being paid as it should be. Okay, so what records do we have and what are the key theories that you should begin to consult in looking for an exciseman? One of the main theories, which we'll be touching upon in case studies during the course of this talk, is CUS 39, Board of Customs and Successor Staff Lists, running from 1760 to 1937. There are also Board of Excise Minute Books in CUST 47 from 1695 to 1867. Entry Papers of Excisemen from 1820 to 1870 in the series CUST 116. Ham's Revenue Yearbooks for Excise from 1875, although only making sense from 1876 to 1930, of which there is a set in our Library and Resource Centre and CUST 48 Treasury Correspondence with the Board of Excise from 1668 to 1839. Worthwhile for the completest but not necessarily giving an immense amount of information on an individual. In CUST 110 we have the Irish Board and Establishment of the Board of Excise from 1824 to 1833 only. In CUST 111 Irish Revenue Police Minutes and Appointments from 1830 to 1857. In T44 and in T45, there are Treasury pay lists for England and for Scotland. These are official lists sent by the Board of Excise Establishment to the Treasury and contain bills of salary due to customs officers. They're arranged every quarter, but they contain no family details. In addition, Details of the initial processing of pensions can be obtained through Treasury Board letters and papers in the series T1, running from 1557 to 1858. Every 10 to 20 years, lists were sent to Parliament and published, and in published parliamentary papers, you can get basic details of excise men. You'll get their name, and you can therefore trace when they were in the service, but you get little further information other than that from them. So, what about the CUS 39 staff lists? They're split into several sections, and at various times, these lists include geographical staff lists, pensions and superannuations, lists of senior staff, salaries and capacities. Largely for excise, these staff lists 
are in cusp 39 between pieces 225 and 234, running from 1870 to 1937. For the period 1870 to 1909, the lists appear to have been selected on the basis of one document every three years. Cusp 39249 contains lists that were created in the 1830s but include information going back to 1760, so you can trace certain details in the staff list for early customs officers, but largely your period 1870 to 1909 is going to be where the hub of those lists are useful. And those lists also contain details of the processing of pensions from 1856 to 1922, contained within CUS 39-157-159. There are minute books at the National Archives in record series CUS 47, running from 1695 to 1867. They're arranged chronologically, and all volumes are indexed. Microfiche copies of the indexes are currently available in our microfilm reading room at Kew. The Board of Excise Minute Books contain information on the first and later postings of excise officers with details of any praise or censure. They contain no family details but can be used to work out the details of a man's career since they contain the details of movements, promotions, leave and offences. All of these were minuted by the Board. Ideally, you would need to establish which years that you wish to, have, that you wish to look through or have searched for you. But beware that even with the index minutes, there's so in-depth that going through the index on fiche may take you some time to actually secure the detail of your individual before ordering up the books themselves. A wonderful starting point, as long as the period is correct, is entry books, which are contained within the series CUSP 116. The entry papers only run from 1820 to 1870. There is an alphabetical card index to these records, held in the Research Inquiries Room at the National Archives. And it gives the CUSP 116 piece or file number and the year of entry into excise so that you can then order up that, get the details from there, but also perhaps have a look at the minute books because you'll already have a good lead as to the starting. They, again, give no family details. They usually consist of two letters folded together, the first with the recommendation from the supervisor of the district in which the person who is applying has spent six weeks as an apprentice. They give the name of the applicant, his age, place of birth, marital status and a character reference. Second letter is from the excise officer responsible for the applicant's training stating whether he's proficient in reading, spelling and arithmetic. There are published Ham's yearbooks, annual publications giving lists of ages and salaries and capacities organised by excise collection. Now in the library, useful from 1876 to 1930, and before 1909, the volumes may be entitled Inland Revenue, or just Revenue, instead of Excise. All excise officers should be listed in these publications, and all you need is the first and name and the surname to make a good search feasible although a knowledge of the town or collection to which the exciseman was attached would be helpful. Correspondence from the excise board to the Treasury exists in a series cast 48 and runs from 1668 to 1839. Most volumes are indexed, and the in-letters from the Board of Excise generally request Treasury approval for probationers, appointments, promotions and superannuations. Treasury outletters back to the Board of Excise then contain the sanction 
or vetoing of requests or demands for further information before the Treasury decides, since they hold the purse across not only the excise but all government departments of whether or not they decide to take up these requests. There are also occasional memorials from the Board of Excise or from excise individuals regarding personal circumstances or matters affecting the excise service as a whole. There are minutes of the Irish Board of Excise in CUS 110 from 1824 to 1833. There are minutes and appointments of the commissioners responsible for the administration of excise in Ireland together with lists of the establishment there. CUS 110-1 is a list of those in the excise establishment between 1824 and 1829. First name and surname is essential to make a search feasible. And again, the date of entry into the Irish excise is highly desirable. Minute books of the Irish Revenue Police are maintained in the series CUS 111 from 1830 to 1857. They concern appointments to the force which had been organised in 1830 and subsequently strengthened in order to combat the illicit making of malt and distillation of spirit in Ireland in contravention of the Irish Illicit Distillation Act of 1831. First name and surname is essential to make a search feasible and a knowledge of the officers' dates of service would also be helpful. Okay, so those are the records that, that we can trace an officer through. How do we apply them to an individual? Probably the most famous exciseman was the radical propagandist and voice of the common man, Thomas Paine. Thomas Paine was born in Fetford in Norfolk on January the 29th, 1737. In 1760, Payne applied for a post in the excise service, and towards the end of 1760, Payne began a six-month schooling, learning the duties of an exciseman, and in July 1761 was made a probationary excise officer. In January 1762, he was appointed as a substantive exciseman in Fetford, although as an outrider, his duties encompassed a number of outlying towns. On the 1st of December 1762, Thomas Paine was appointed as officer of Whole Beach Outride in the Grantham Collection upon the death of Thomas Middleton. We can find that record minuted in Cust 47, 238, Folio 47. It was at this point that Paine must have taken up the practices of his fellow colleagues in certifying goods without ever having inspected them. This came to the attention of a supervisor, William Swallow, and in August 1765, he was dismissed from his position at the tender age of 28. The dismissal can be found in CUS 47-251, folio 98. Following unfruitful stints as a corset maker and school teacher, Payne wrote to the Board of Excise begging for reinstatement. The Board relented and on the 4th of July 1766 ordered that he should be restored once a proper vacancy became available. On the 15th of May 1767, he was appointed to succeed George Chapel as officer of Grand Pound Division, Cornwall Collection, but he turned this down. On the 29th of February 1768, he was instead appointed as an inspector in the small town of Lewis in East Sussex, a notorious hotbed for smugglers. The minute can be found in Cus 47, 262, Folio 24. Whilst being inland, the Lewis outride covered the stretch of coast between Falmer and Brighton. Payne took to doing what he did best and travelled the country speaking to fellow excisemen and whipping up funds and support for a common appeal to Parliament. He published the pamphlet The Case of Officers of Excise with remarks on the qualifications of officers 
and on the numerous evils arising from, to the revenue from the insufficiency of the present salary, published in Lewis, 1772. This had little effect, but his time spent away from his work did. On the 8th of April, 1774, Payne was discharged from his duties for a second time for having absented himself from his post without leave. This is minuted in Cus 47, 293, folio 21. In London, he met Benjamin Franklin, who helped him to emigrate to America in October 1774. And the rest, as I say, is history. In Cust 48, we have the initial petition sent to the commissioners of excise to be passed on to the Treasury, requesting better pay and conditions for excisemen. It comes from Cust 48.18, and we can see already the style for which Thomas Paine would become well-known when, in America, he began writing his tracts. It has the humble and dutiful petition of officers of the commissioners of customs of excise, excise and revenue showeth that we, the undermentioned persons, being deputed by the whole body of the officers of excise throughout England and Wales to represent and set forth the distress and poverty we at present labour under, humbly beg to lay before this honourable board that the amazing and increasing difference in the price of all necessities of life between the present time and that wherein the salaries of officers were at first established has so reduced the circumstances of your petitioners and so involved them in want and misery that they have become unable to support themselves and their families with that credit, decency and independence which is essentially necessary in a revenue officer. And the remainder then goes on to say, will you please put this forward to the Treasury and let them take it on board. Sadly, they didn't, which is why it was then presented to Parliament in a publication instead. So we can gain quite a bit of the details of Thomas Paine's time in the excise service from the records that are available. In Cust 110, the Irish Board of Excise, we can trace individuals, and in this case, in Cust 110 stroke 1, the entry for James Baker, supervisor of Dublin's 7th district. There are basic details that can then be picked out from the minutes and appointments in Cust 110 stroke 4, where we see that James Baker has been appointed fully by order of the 27th of March, 1829, examiner on the English establishment to be supervisor of Dublin 7th District. The records of the Irish Revenue Police in Cusp 111, running from 1830 to 1847, concern appointments to the force, which was reorganised in 1830. We see here from 1844 a typical example which simply shows the number of privates in the Revenue Police who had been instructed at the depot and the names of their supervisors. So the information is scant, but can still hopefully then get people back to further details using other sources. Well, that's a fairly comprehensive trawl through what records there are for an exciseman, where you can look. Just as we tie up, what exactly did an exciseman have to face? What difficulties were there? What difficulties were presented by um, huge levies of taxation upon goods that people wanted? One large problem they would face was in smuggling. Up on 
the screen at the moment, we have a map of Portsmouth. It's from the 1790s and is located in MPI 1198. It shows the landing places generally used by smugglers, together with the force of revenue in their stations, and also the customs in their stations, and from which we get a good example of how the two services of customs and excise work together to prevent smuggling. During the late 18th and 19th centuries, increased duties on wines and spirits resulted in widespread smuggling. Smuggling ships traded freely with French ports throughout the Napoleonic Wars and often took reports of English conditions over to the enemy, returning with letters to spies in Britain, another reason why this had to be countered quickly and effectively. To counteract this, both the customs and excise services raised a prize bounty on seized goods. One result of this, though, was that officers were often assaulted in the course of intercepting contraband. We can see by 1792 how bad the situation had, be had become with a petition in Cust 48 from the excise to the Treasury. The petition is an interesting one. It reads... We beg leave to humbly represent to your lordships that the practice of smuggling, particularly in tea and brandy, which has for some years past been greatly increasing, is now carried on by numerous and formidable gangs to such a height that unless some more effectual assistance be given, they will be deterred from their duty in suppressing the running of these excisable commodities, and the revenue will thereby greatly suffer. It appears by reports transmitted to us by our collectors in various parts of the kingdom, that smuggling is no longer confined to small parties, but that smugglers assemble in gangs of 50, 60, or sometimes 100 horsemen armed with bludgeons and loaded whips, that they carry their goods by day as well as by night, and that although the, these large bodies separate into smaller companies as they advance from the seaside towns towards London, yet they seldom move in gangs of less than 20, 30, or 40, so that the excise officers are frequently unable to interrupt them or if they do, it is at the risk of their lives, and they are prevented from making seizures of any consequence. Many very recent complaints have been made to us by our supervisors, and other officers have been violently assaulted and wounded by these gangs of smugglers, and when they apply for assistance of the soldiers quartered in the neighbourhood, even then they are seldom a match for the smugglers, and if a seizure is at any time made, it is a trifle in comparison to the vast quantities of smuggled goods which they carry off in spite of the endeavours of the officers. So widespread were the assaults on officers that a large part of one series within the King's Bench, KB32, is devoted to affidavits of customs and excise officers assaulted during the course of their attempts to intercept goods being smuggled. There's an example of Cus 32 stroke 3, the affidavit in the King's Bench of David Thomas of Court Wynyard in the county of Cardigan, in which he attests, on the 27th day of February, he, this deponent, having received information that some smuggled spirits would be removed in the evening of that day on the road to Lampeter in the county of Cardigan, and having procured the assistance of another person, went out in the evening of that day to detect and seize the same, that about 11 or 12 o'clock at night, a man came by with a horse laden with two casks slung in a manner used by smugglers and when this deponent stopped the horse and goods and regularly seized the same as forfeiture 
than the same man whose name is John Pugh of Little Mountain near Clandilo in the county of Carmarthen, labourer, obstructed this deponent and with a large stick or club which he had in his hand struck, struck him, this deponent, several blows and also struck and assaulted this deponent's assistant. That this deponent defended himself as well as he could and after several, after a severe struggle and contest, he, this deponent and his said assistant secured the seizure. There wasn't just a rise in smuggling during the 18th and early 19th century. There were widespread riots when taxation was increased upon various commodities, malt and gin especially. In 1725, Robert Walpole introduced a malt tax in Scotland, effectively doubling the existing duty that had been established under the malt tax of 1714. Due to the gross dislike of the malt tax, there were widespread riots across the country. The most serious of these was in June 1725 in Glasgow. When revenue officers arrived to assess the maltsters, they were met by large angry crowds. On June the 24th, the mob decided to attack the house of Duncan Campbell, representative of Parliament for Glasgow, believing that he had supported the tax in the Houses of Parliament. The angry scenes prompted the Lord Advocate, Duncan Forbes, to call in troops from Edinburgh, but the provost was not in agreement with this decision and refused to use them against the rioters. However, the crowd, unhappy with the presence of the troops, attacked him. The troops retaliated, resulting in the death of eight civilians. This is recorded in State Papers Scotland, and in SP 5415-45b, we have a letter from General Wade to the provost and magistrates of Glasgow on his intention to restore order to the city and ordering them to disarm their citizens. He writes, Gentlemen, their excellencies, the Lord Justices, have been pleased to signify their high resentment of the late tumultuous and riotous proceedings of the inhabitants of your city, which have been attended with the circumstances of rapine and bloodshed, and in contempt and defiance of the laws of the kingdom, and they are in, of the opinion that all this might probably have been prevented if you had acted with the vigilance and resolution becoming magistrates. I am therefore commanded by their excellencies to march a body of His Majesty's forces into the city of Glasgow in order to support the civil powers in restoring the peace and quiet of the city. And being informed that several of the inhabitants have armed themselves and keep a guard of the town, you are hereby required to call such arms to be lodged and secured in some proper places or magazines to prevent any mischief that might otherwise happen between the townspeople and His Majesty's forces. Another notable incident occurred in 1836. The enactment of the Gin Act had very much similar effects to the malt tax. On the 7th of September 1736, Captain Portius was dragged from his prison and lynched by an angry mob in Edinburgh. The Porteous riots had erupted in April 1736 when Andrew Wilson, a smuggler, was hanged in the grass market for robbing a customs officer. Public rioting that followed Wilson's death was quashed by the locally born John Porteous, captain of the Edinburgh Guard, when he ordered his troops to open fire on the angry crowd, killing and wounding up to 30 people. Portius was sentenced to death, but later reprieved following the intervention of Queen Caroline. George II was in Hanover at the time and largely disinterested. Uh, this led to a lynch mob descending in fury on the prison. 
Enraged that Portius's appeal had been successful and that he'd escaped the fate that had been meted out to Wilson. An angry crowd stormed the toll booth and escorted Portius to the grass market and hanged him from a dyer's pole. We can trace in SP 5422 the proceedings of this. Item 48 is a letter from Major General Moyle giving his account of the night when the Edinburgh mob took Captain Portius from the toll booth and killed him. The mob, finding themselves absolute masters, immediately set fire to the prison gate, and in about an hour it was so much consumed by this fire that the mob beat it to pieces and rushed into the prison, seized the turnkeys within, and forced them to open every ward in the prison, dismissed all the prisoners, and then laid hold of Captain Portius, dragged him downstairs, and hurried him up Lawn Market Street and down West Bar to the Grass Market, where they broke open a shop and took out a coil of ropes and tied one end of it about his neck and threw the other over a dyer's pole, hard by the common place of execution, and pulled him up and hanged him about a quarter before twelve at night. Several attempts were made to take down the body, but the mob beat everyone who made such a proposal, till about daybreak a few members of the council and some neighbours got the body taken down and laid it in the Greyfriars Church. So, we can see what an excise officer did, where to find the records, what difficulties they faced. Lastly, how can you trace them elsewhere? Later records, you can find you'd need to apply where records are closed to HM Customs and Excise Information Service. There is a website, www.hmce.gov.uk. Details of service post-1930 are still closed. Applications can be made under the Freedom of Information Act. It would very much depend whether or not an officer was still living, what one's relation to, to him was. HM Customs and Excise National Museum also can be contacted from their website, www.liverpoolmuseums.org.uk slash customs, hold the national collection of the Department of Customs and Excise. As well as a full collection of Ham's yearbooks, it includes an extensive display of tools of the job, prints, paintings and photographs relating to the work of the Departments of Customs and Excise. Fairly hot news coming quite soon to the Society of Genealogists will be Customs and Excise staff lists running from 1890 to 1922. They've been designated as a place of deposit for these lists. There are inland revenue establishment lists from 1881 to 1922 as well, and the material includes some index cards. Volumes from 1922 onwards will remain close to the public. Going locally, one example of what you can find is shown by Cornwall, but uh, local record offices have a good number of details in relation to excise and revenue cutters, local papers... A variety of sources, particularly rich. In Cornwall, there's the Courtney Library and Cornish History Archive at the Royal Institution, who can be emailed at ric at royal-cornwall-museum.freeserve.co.uk. Cornish Customs and Excise Officers from 1754 to 1837 are covered, as well as details of shipwrecks and Cornish-built ships. You can also find Cornish sources from the Cornwall Record Office in Truro and from local papers. In Scotland and in Ireland, the National Archives of Scotland can be contacted 
try initially their website www.nas.gov.uk for the National Archives of Scotland. Extremely useful for details of offices pre-1830. National Archives of Ireland, www.nationalarchives.ie, useful for details of customs offices and excise offices from 1923. But beware of, uh, you might need to search if you're looking for somebody who was posted in Northern Ireland, occasionally you might need to go uh, to the National Archives of Ireland and also an officer in Ireland, you might need to go to the uh, Public Record Office of Northern Ireland. And their website is www.proni.gov.uk and useful for records from 1923 onwards. And I think hopefully that sums it up for you quite nicely and it's there that uh, I'd like to conclude the talk. This event was recorded live on May the 22nd, 2007 at the National Archives at Kew. It was presented by James Cronin. This podcast is copyright the National Archives, all rights reserved.